Well, good morning again. My name is uh, Brandon. Uh, like I said in the beginning, I'm the, the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at, um, here at Sojourn Heights. Let me, uh, let me just reiterate one thing that, um, that Dodds just, uh, just talked about, that uh, neighborhood parishes really are the lifeblood of the church. To step into Sojourn is to step into uh, a neighborhood parish. And so, um, like he said, if you want to uh, get to know more info about neighborhood parishes, Downstairs will be there. You can check the the box and drop it in a black box on the way out. Or, uh, or a lot of us, uh, a lot of us will be going to lunch uh, after the gathering. In fact, I got a text this morning. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I'm going to do it. Uh, my uh, my neighborhood parish is going to be going to Craftsman over on 22nd Street, which is incredible if you've never been to Craftsman. Uh, and so, if you want to meet some people in the church, I hope my parish leader is not mad at me. But show up at Craftsman after the gathering. All right, let's go. We are in week three of a, uh, of a series called Kingdom Expansion, where we're going through and looking at selected passages uh, in the book of Acts. So week one, uh, we saw this kingdom of God that was expanded through the ascension of Christ, where Christ ascended from earth to heaven. And then week two, we, uh, we, we saw uh, that it was expa- uh, expanded at Pentecost, as the Spirit came in uh, power. And then this week, uh, where those were kind of like big global shifting thing. This week gets a little bit more, uh, more personal. And so let's, uh, let's dive right in. Um, a guy named Peter Kreeft, which is not a great last name, Kreeft. We should all say it together. Kreeft. Don't. Um, we're not going to, but we should. Uh, he, he's a professor of philosophy at Boston College and at King's College. And he, he, he looks at desires and looks at all human desires and he puts them in two categories. Uh, he calls them either innate desires or um, socially conditioned uh, desires or externally conditioned uh, desires, then he gives, a, he gives a list. He gives a list of, of each one. And so um, externally conditioned desires, according to Peter, would be, um, would be things like a sports car for some of us, right? A political office, a, uh, you know, a Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl, something along those lines. Uh, <laughs> that was for a few of us. It was an inside joke. I'm actually shifting right now to becoming a Houston fan. If the Rockets beat the Mavs tonight, they will have earned my loyalty, and I'm in, all right? So, uh, and then innate desires. He gives us list of innate desires. Um, he calls them things like food, drink, sleep, sex, and then he gives another one, and listen to this. Innate human desires, according to Peter Kreeft. Beauty. Beauty. He says that beauty is an innate human desire. And, and so uh, to the men in the room, here's what we don't say, Yahtzee. Uh, here's what we, we do say, Yahtzee, sometimes. But here, here's what we don't say. We, we don't wake up, we don't go look in the mirror and go, you know what, I just, I just don't feel beautiful today, all right? If you do say it, let me pastor you, please don't, all right? But here's what we do. We, uh, we, we go to the gym and we just stare at ourselves in the mirror. We secretly take longer than our wives to get ready. We don't say the words, I don't feel beautiful today, but there's an innate longing for beauty in all of us. It's why my my five-year-old daughter will light up when I sit down, look her in the eyes, and say, Daddy thinks you're beautiful. There's an innate longing for desire, uh, desire for beauty, according to um, Peter Kreeft. And, and here's, here's what our text is about today. Here's what our text in, in Acts 3 is about today. It's about how God makes 
broken people beautiful. It's about how God makes broken people beautiful. And it's going to say that there's an event and a process that we go through in this. And that, that event and that process is called repentance. And that's a, that's a word that gets thrown around, especially in churches often, and so quick a definition. Uh, repent means to turn from something and turn to something. Most often in the scriptures, it's, it's, it's acknowledging a wrongdoing, right? And then asking for forgiveness for that wrongdoing. That's, that's repentance in the scriptures. And so um, our text today, as we get into it, it's going to kind of be one of those stories where, you know, when you uh, read a book or a blog or a tweet or something, and, and you, need, you need to know the end from the beginning, right, for it to make sense and for it to, to it just enhances the story if you, if you know what's coming. That's kind of our text today. And so our, our text today is this, um, this kind of sermon, if you will, uh, this narrative coming out of Acts where it's building to verse 19, where Peter, um, this guy named Peter, uh, looks at this group of Israelites and says, repent. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to let the story unfold to verse 19, but we're going to do it in light of what's about to come. We're going to do it in light of that declaration by Peter to repent. All right, so we're going to see three things, the DNA of repentance, the brokenness of repentance, and the beauty of repentance. So DNA, the brokenness, and the beauty. Let's look at verse 11. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter, while he clung to Peter, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to him in the portico called Solomon's. Now, now he, we, we need to know what's happening here. Be, before we can get into the rest of, of our passage, we need to know what's happening here uh, in the story. Are you guys hot? Is it hot in here today? Yeah, I'm seeing, you know, fanning with hands. And so it's not going to work. You, you need to grab something else. Um, <laughs> just, just trying to help, right? But if you can come fan me, that would be amazing. Uh, you can use hands, whatever you want to use. Um, anyway, back to the sermon. In the first part of Acts 3, um, Peter and John are heading up to the temple to pray. Uh, and then this man who's a, a crippled beggar, uh, he, he comes up and he's, he's asking for money from them. And Peter looks at him. Peter looks at him and says this. He says, I, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then this man, this crippled man, he gets up and he walks into the temple and do you know where it happened? You know where the scene happened? It happened at a place called the Beautiful Gate. Now, the, the Beautiful Gate, here, here's, what's, here, here's what's kind of ironic about this and, and um, a little out of place, is that this is the only place in the scriptures the Beautiful Gate gets mentioned. And in ancient literature, it gets very little to no run. It gets very little to no uh, pub. Even for this massive structure that it, uh, that it was, it gets very little recognition. So why in the world would Peter... And then Luke recording this event with Peter. Why in the world would Luke have included the beautiful gate inside of his narrative, inside of this story? And, and here's, here's why I think. I, I think that what Luke wants us to know is that it's not an irrelevant little piece of information. In fact, if I could just blanketly say this about the Bible, there is no irrelevant little piece of information in the Scriptures. What Luke wants to know and wants us to know is that Jesus who came, came to make broken people, even crippled beggars, beautiful. And that making broken people beautiful is just what God does. And now most of us in this room, uh, we sit here and you hear the story um, and you think, man, I'm, I'm, not, 
but I'm, I'm not crippled. You, if you are, man, let me tell you, we, we want to pray like crazy that God would heal. We believe God heals. But if you go back and you read the story, and I encourage you to read the story, um, you'll find that this man was healed in the scriptures physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And so while you might not be physically crippled in here, um, I, I, I would venture to guess that many of us would be emotionally crippled. Right? Many of us are sitting in here, um, and you are captivated by something that is broken inside of you, and you're thinking, um, this Jesus, this grace, it might be for me, but there's no way I can fix my problem. Like you, you might sit here and you might think, this is for me. Like, I want this, but there's no way this is strong enough to fix my problem. And I, I mean, it could be from depression that's run wild that you've given yourself over to, to a marriage falling apart, to a job, you name it. And you might think Jesus is for me, but he's not powerful to fix what's wrong with me and wrong with my life. And I'm here to tell you that the scriptures would tell you that is not true. That is not true. It is simply not true that what God does is to take broken people in broken situations and make them beautiful. It's what he does. It's what he does. And so the rest of the passage is going to be a response to what happened at the beautiful gate. So let's keep going. Verse 12. So we've got these people around, they're around Peter, staring at him. And Peter, when he says, when he, when he saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by your own power or by our own power or piety we have made him well? You see, here, here's what... Here's what Peter knows. All right, we've got to, to get into this text, you've got to get into the mind of Peter so you can get into the mind of the men of Israel. That what he knew is that these Jews, these men of Israel, when they saw this, they were going to assume something. They were going to assume that when they, that when they healed this man, it was going to, be, going to be because of something innate within them. It was going to be because of something that was just innate within Peter and John. Either power, right, just natural ability, or piety, religious fervor. And, and Peter is saying, uh-uh. Why, why do you think? He's got a choice here. He's got a choice here. Peter can take the credit. Like, how, how good, I mean, how good would it have felt to be able to say, get up and walk, and then people come stare at you like you're a miracle worker? And Peter has a choice here to take the credit to receive the praise or to redirect them and redirect the credit somewhere else and what Peter does in this question what he does it shows us that the DNA of repentance is humility that to get to verse 19 the path that you have to walk down is humility and if I could throw a sidebar just maybe um, a 30 second sidebar I, I think that genuine true humility and you might disagree with this. If you disagree, I'd love to talk afterwards. I think genuine, true humility is actually unique to Christianity. Now, I'm not saying uh, that every non-Christian in the world is an arrogant jerk. When, when I had um, a job job back in the day, like a real job, um, I, I love my job. I get to go on vacation every day. It's incredible. Um, it really sometimes feels like that. I can't believe the Lord allows me to do this. Um, I love the Bible, love you, and I get to connect those two, um, you know, every day. It's, in, it's incredible. What was I talking about? 
Um, when I had a job job, back when I had a job, often I would find Christians hard to work with. Um, and I think we need to repent of that, but I would often find Christians hard to work with. So I'm not saying that non-Christians are arrogant jerks, but here's what I am saying. Every other worldview, whether it's secular or religious, says what I have, I've earned. Either, either innate power, innate ability, or piety, religious fervor. Either because of my skills, I've earned it, or because of my religious devotion, I've earned it. Only Christianity says what you have, whether it's power or piety, has been earned by someone else. I think genuine, real humility is unique to Christianity. Because only Christianity says it's been earned by someone else. And here's the, here's the danger. I think, I think in that, there's a warning to all of us. I think there's a warning for all of us that would say, um, you, you need to be aware that, that if you think, um, God, I don't know why my marriage is falling apart, I read the Bible. God, I don't know why my job is not the job I want or I'm losing my job. I pray. Or, God, I'm, how am I still single? I, I mean, I'm, I belong to a church. Underneath that, underneath that is an undercurrent that says, I deserve what I have. And I don't deserve not having what I don't. And I think Peter would warn us here. He, he would warn us, hey, don't, don't be the men of Israel uh, who think that what you have is because of power or piety of your own. All that we have has been earned by someone else. All of it is by grace, and it's meant to create a humility in us that leads to repentance. Let's keep going, verse 13. So Peter is saying, why, why do you look at me? Not my power, not my piety. And then 13, he shifts, and he gives this beautiful theological section here uh, that because... Uh, it's not the you know 17th century and I can't preach for two hours that we can't get into all of it, but let me just read it. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. That's a direct arrow back to Isaiah, but, but for another time. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of weeks ago, he, uh, we, we talked about how Luke and Acts are one story. Uh, this is both written by Luke. It's kind of part A, part B. And, um, and if we follow the narrative in, in Acts, you're going to see repeated places where, where Luke's going to, and by Acts I meant Luke, where, where Luke is going to warn in the gospel about arrogance. He, he's going to warn about um, the inherent arrogance that we feel. In fact, at one point he's going to say to Pharisees, this group of Israelites, he's going to say, hey, listen, um, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marking marketplaces. And so if we're building on Luke, here's what I think Peter's saying um, in Acts. He's saying that in to these men of Israel, uh, uh, men of Israel, in your pursuit of glory, blinded by your arrogance, you missed it with Jesus. You, listen, you, you denied him. You denied the author of life, the holy and the righteous one. You looked at a murderer and you said, give him grace, give us Jesus. That's not true. You said, give him grace, give to him, give wrath to Jesus. You, 
He's saying, in your arrogance, in your blindness, in your pursuit of glory, you missed the glory of the Son. You missed the glory of the gospel. You missed it. And because of your blind arrogance, he's saying you're missing it now. You're you're looking at that man and you're missing it. You're missing it. You're wanting to dump credit on me. You're missing it. It's not because of me that that man was healed. You're missing it. And now in verse 16, Peter says this, in his name, by faith in his name, by the name of Jesus, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were not kind to Peter. They, they did not paint Peter in a, in a wonderful light. Painted him as a man who cares a lot about what others, other people think, a glory-hungry man who at his core was no different than the men of Israel. And what did he just do? What did he just, he just redirected them from himself to Jesus. Don't, don't credit me with this. Credit Jesus with this. It's by faith in his name that this perfect health has come. And to point others to Jesus, here's what, here's what Peter had to do first. Peter had to first learn to point himself to Jesus. Right? Before Peter can point others to Jesus, he's got to learn to point himself to Jesus. And if you can learn to point yourself to Jesus, it leads to a life of humble repentance. And so there's no one in here, uh, no, no one in this room right now, Christian, non-Christian, who finds repenting of uh, of anything that we've done easy, right? No, no one, uh, if you say, man, I'm just good at it, you're lying, right? I'm not good at it, you're not good at it, none of us are good at it. It's difficult. No one wants to do it. And so I'm going to give you three reasons, uh, three reasons why repentance is so rare in our lives. Reason number one, uh, uh, we simply live in a fallen world. Uh, we, we live in a fallen world with fallen people where sin has come in, um, and it's um, created a broken relationship within ourselves uh, and within our, uh, within our relationships around us, both inside of our families, inside of our church family, inside of our neighborhoods and communities. Uh, we live under the weight of a fallen world. And so at our core, we're no different than the men of Israel. At our core, we are all glory-hungry men and women. Uh, and pursuing repentance means setting our desire for glory aside for the glory of Jesus. And none of us default there, not one of us. Here's a second reason. Um, the second reason uh, is that most of us, uh, most of us aren't, are simply not paying attention to our lives. Most of us are not paying attention to our lives. Let me, let me illustrate this one if I can. Um, this week, uh, Drew, one of our pastors, and I went over to England to visit uh, uh, an Acts 29 conference group of pastors over there. And uh, if, you've, if you've never been to England, uh, first, they drive on the wrong side of the road. Uh, they say we drive on the wrong side of the road, uh, and so it's fair. They drive on the wrong side of the road, and then they also drive on the wrong side of the car, right? And so, uh, and then all their cars are stick shift. So, I have no idea how to drive a stick shift. I don't have a clue. Uh, Drew apparently kind of does. And so we, uh, <laughs> we go, uh, don't, I don't know where he's at. Don't be mad at me, Drew. Um, we, we get our rental car, and we start driving. Um, and in route, it, it was great. We only uh, stalled out three times. Uh, and, and <laughs> but one of them was on the freeway. And so 
that's not good. I don't know if you've ever, been, you know. Uh, and here's what Drew said afterwards. Um, he was tell- as I was recapping the story to you know 48 other people. Uh, he uh, he said, "Here's what was that. We we were started. We were talking." Uh, slow down, and I just wasn't paying attention. And then all of a sudden, snap, my neck, I went to the hospital, it was good. And so, I, I think many of us, many, so like, we're engaged in the conversation and we're missing what's going on around us with the cars slowing down. Missing that. I, I think many of us, we, we're, we're in that boat, like spiritually, when we look at our lives, right? We're just so engaged, that, that we're missing what's going on around us. And even we're missing what's going on inside of us. We're simply not paying attention. And then the third reason, uh, the third reason, and I think this might be the most common of all, is that I think, I think we don't think small sin today has serious consequences down the road. I think that we think small sin today is no big deal. But let me, let me say this, and some of you, I, I'm going to say this, and you're never going to come back. I don't want that to happen, but it's going to happen. There's going to be, in the future, more than likely, men and women in this room who have an affair. More than likely, at some point down the road, there's going to be men or women inside this room who have an affair on their spouse. And the root of that affair, whether you're single or married today, is going to be that you gave in to to double takes at the gym. It's going to be that you gave in to subtle glances. And you thought it was a small sin that doesn't have large consequences. And over the years, that small sin is going to fester and grow and grow and grow. And it will be deadly to your soul. But not just your own. It will be deadly to the soul of the community that you belong to. That there is no one in this room that is an autonomous person. If you think you are an autonomous person, the only one deceived in here is you. No one in here doesn't have their sin, their life, their mistakes affect the people around them. And our inability to be honest with ourselves, to look deep within ourselves and to pursue repentance in our own lives will cut the soul of our church out. We're this church, this Sojourn Heights, this is our Sunday gathering, and then um, we, we... gather in these neighborhood parishes throughout the week where we live out church as family, just ordinary people, you and me, normal people trying to learn to follow Jesus, live on mission together as a community. And when we're unwilling and unable to look at the um, state of our life and live a life of humble repentance, our parishes will never be what we want them to become. We dream of these little parishes around our neighborhood that are both inward and outward facing at the same time where we take Jesus and we put him on display for one another and we we put Jesus on display for our neighbors. And if we're a group of men and women who gather in these parishes and live lives where we're too arrogant to look at our own life and repent from it, 
that parish will always be about you medicating yourself. And it will never be about you putting Christ on display for one another. It will never be about you putting Christ on display for our neighbors. It will always be about what can I get out of this. It will cut the soul out of our community. Listen, if you want to be, a little side note, you want to you be a Christian on mission, repent in community. Repent in community on display for your neighbors. I, I've, heard, I've heard it said often, and I, I can't talk about this in front of them. Why? Why? You don't think they're struggling with the same things? You don't think your coworkers and my neighbors are struggling with the same things? What if? Like what what if we actually let them see us take Jesus, this picture of humility? What if we just let them see us take Jesus and apply Jesus to our life in a way that leads us to repent? What if we just let them see that? It might see this hope for them in the middle of what they're struggling with, that Jesus could be applied to them. So the DNA of repentance is humility. And we have to ask where this humility comes from. Point two, the brokenness of repentance. Verse 17. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did I just love, I mean, I just love that Peter just, I know, brothers, you just acted in ignorance. We wouldn't, we would ne- we're way too politically correct to say that today. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the prophets, by the mouth of all the prophets, circle the word all, all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And so here's Peter in verse 17, he's saying, listen, I, Look, look, men of Israel, I, I know that you know the Old Testament, and I'm telling you, you're ignorant to the Old Testament because you don't know how to interpret the Old Testament. And then he comes in verse 18, and he says, because God, through all the prophets, said not just that Christ would come, but that Christ would suffer. That Christ would come and that Christ would suffer. And when, the, when the New Testament authors read the Old Testament, they they didn't see it as this kind of historic collection of books. They, they saw it as divinely inspired revelation of Jesus. It's why we say every week, God's read it a minute ago, that we go to the scriptures because it is there that the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed. Most clearly revealed. And so Peter was preaching this sermon, and so I, um, I want to bring this home and apply this to Sundays, to what we're doing right now, that every week we gather for what we call word and sacrament. Word and sacrament, where we sit under the word and we come down to the table and share in, um, in communion. And as we sit under this word, that Christ, the word, becomes visible through his word. And so some of the, some of the way that we try to do this, I mean, um, our, our sermons, what we're doing right now, it, it follows uh, a pattern, a usual pattern that usually we, we kind of go line by line. Not, not always. Um, there's no right way to preach like that. But usually we, we kind of go line by line through a passage, through uh, a text. And, uh, and we start out with what is it saying to us? What, what is it saying? How does it apply? What's it calling us to? And then we go from there 
uh, we go to Jesus and how Jesus fulfills what this text is talking about. And then collectively, in light of Jesus, what does it mean for us? What, what can we do from here? And the reason that we do that, let me, well, there's a lot of reasons we do it like that. But let me just tell you one reason we do it like that. One reason we do it like that is that we want to disciple you, train you, equip you in how to read the Bible through both the structure of our sermons and the content of our sermons. That you would learn that the text doesn't always just go to me, but it got, has to go through who Jesus is as it reveals Jesus, and then Jesus gets applied to my life out of the Word. And then, and then we come down for communion. We, we come down to this bread and this cup, and we're reminded that, as Peter just said, that Christ suffered. That Christ suffered. And when you come down, uh, we, you're going to have someone say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Uh, this sacrament, the sacrament of communion, we believe in a beautiful way, sustains our ability to live a life of repentance. It sustains and nourishes our faith so that we can live a life of repentance as we acknowledge our need for Jesus and we're reminded uh, that we receive grace. We don't achieve grace. And that by the Spirit, we call it communion, right? By the Spirit, we are communing with Jesus in the bread and in the cup. That the bread stays the bread, the cup stays the cup. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And by the Spirit, in this beautiful way, we're communing with Christ. It, it says in uh, Corinthians that we are fellowshipping with Christ when we do this. That we are sharing in the suffering of Christ in this and that Jesus is present in a really unique and beautiful, uh, beautiful way when we come down and we take this sacrament. And the way that uh, Westminster Confession of Faith says it, which, by the way, I, I love confessions. They're not the Bible. They're great teachers. They're tutors to help us read the Bible. Um, it's a way that we say, you know what, man, we're not, we're not young and innovative. We stand on the shoulders of hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of years of men and women, brothers and sisters who have gone before, and we can learn from them. And Westminster says that when we come to this table, that spiritually, spiritually Christ is present to the faith of believers, that this faith in Christ that, that creates humility, that leads to repentance, gets nourished in the table, that we might live a life of repentance. And that, that through the brokenness of Jesus, we we get to come together every week, every Sunday for word and for sacrament, and we get to be reminded and we get to be sustained by what Christ has done for us as we enter in and we're enabled to engage our own brokenness, our own brokenness, so that by grace, Jesus might make it beautiful. And we might be able to live out verse 19, the beauty of repentance. I'm going to wrap up quick. Verse 19 says, repent therefore. And because of what Jesus has done, repent, turn back. It's actually a word play that Peter does. Repent, remember to turn, turn therefore, and turn back. He's pleading with them. Like there's this emotive, emotional plea in Peter right now for these people who say, turn, turn. Listen, men of Israel, I love you. Sojourn, I love you. Sojourn Heights, I love you. I love you. Turn. 
Turn. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. Restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That here's Peter's declaration. Repent. Repent. And why? 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 Do you think Peter's after moral conformity? Are you kidding me? Like it's not, it's not repent so that you can morally conform to religious standard. It's repent so that you can experience the refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. Repent so that you might experience more of Jesus in your life. That's repent, repent so that your worship might not be hindered. Repent so that you might love Christ more deeply, love your neighbor more deeply. Repent. Repent so that as you repent and as you experience this refreshing, this, this more of Jesus in your life, you might partake in the restoration of all things until Christ returns and makes it right. That, that this repentance, Martin Luther, Martin Luther leading the Reformation, 1500s, nailing 95 theses to the door. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. First one, the life of a believer should be a life of repentance. That the entirety of our life should be a life of repentance. It's the event where we come in and become a Christian. It's the daily substance of our life where we grow in the refreshing that comes in Christ. And as we do, we lead and experience restoration both with ourselves. Listen, stage one, we experience restoration within ourselves, the brokenness within us, and then restoration with others. And so we wrap. Let me close. Let me close this way. Westminster Confession again. On repentance. What I'm about to say here. We can draw it out of the scriptures and then as your pastor, as one of your pastors who loves you and wants to see Jesus formed in you more deeply than words will ever express. I want you to hear this, but not just from me. I want you to hear this from hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pastors across the globe who looked at this and said, Amen. Listen to this. We should fight. We should fight for the duty to repent of our particular sins, not just our sin in general. Listen, if you, if you find yourself repenting like this, Oh God, I repent. Of what? I don't know. No. It's like when I say to my wife, I accept your apology. And she's like, for what? I'm like, I don't know. I just know it's coming. All right. Probably should have left that out. I'm sorry, babe. Um, it's, it's an internal family joke. Um, listen to me. You're, you're like the men of Israel. I'm, I'm like the men of Israel. At, at, at core, glory, hungry men and women. But listen to me. I know it's hot and I know we're wrapping up, but listen to me. You are nothing like the men of Israel. You have Christ in you. Christ suffered in your place by the Spirit. Christ gets nourished in you week in and week out. And you need to hear Peter say to you, 
Repent. Repent. Not, not just of sin in general. Repent of the particular sin that you walk in. And let me tell you, let me tell you something about preaching a passage like this. It makes for a miserable week leading up to it. There is, I'll tell you, I had no idea the depth of comparison I live with. I mean, the struggle with sinful comparison that gets exposed in a pastor's conference in Europe. That's, that is a particular sin that will lead to incredible amounts of discontentment that will lead to me using people around me that I need to repent of. Repent of particular sin in your life. It could be anything from anxiety to addiction to being a workaholic to being to anger to cowardice to greed to you name it. You name it. Repent of it. Get underneath it. Get Get on it. Find out where it comes from. And listen to Peter say, repent. And when Peter says repent, and when I say to you, you repent, you listen to me. This is not law. Repentance is grace in action. This is not law. This is how you live out the grace of God in your life. So that by grace, so that by grace, what's broken might become beautiful, and that you might stand shoulder to shoulder with a crippled man at the beautiful gate saying, I'm broken and I need you to repair me. I need you, O oh Jesus, to make me beautiful. LA Fitness can't do it. Hair color can't do it. I don't really know what, I was trying to think of what women do to pursue it. I don't know, so all I had was hair color. That's a fail. That we might stand shoulder to shoulder with a crippled beggar saying, oh Jesus, I need you to make me beautiful. And that we might experience together the refreshing that comes from the restoration that's born out of a life of repentance. Let's pray.